Blogs on Tape presents a reading of The Blood-Soaked Boudoir of Velkis the Vile, written by Nick L.S. Whalen and available as a pay-what-you-want download from drivethroughrpg.com. The Blood-Soaked Boudoir of Velkis the Vile Using this adventure the focus of this adventure is the horror comedy of its titular villain. Velkus himself is a fairly complex creature, so several pages are devoted to how to run him. The blood-soaked boudoir should not be run as a standalone adventure. Instead, Velkus can be added to the encounter table of an area the PCs are already interested in. He requires many victims, so he may capture someone the PCs care to rescue. Failing that, if the players encounter him alive after they've slain him, their curiosity will be piqued. By the time the players find the entrance to his boudoir, they should already have a history with Velkus. This adventure is based on Lamentations of the Flame Princess rules, but should be compatible with any old-school fantasy dungeon-crawling game. For those using other systems, note that I assume Unarmored Armor class is 12 and a Silver Piece standard for treasure. Velkis the Vile Everyone has something to say about the undead man, but if any of the things they say are true, it's only by luck. Technically, he's not even undead. Some say he's an evil wizard, and others say he's a demon. The latter is laughably false, footnote, literally, the suggestion sends Velkis into fits of laughter. Aside from being wrong, it's unclear why this is so funny, Apparently, you need to have been there. The former may have been true once, but if it was, then Velkis is now so entwined within the webs of his own enchantments that no wizard would recognize his craft. In his madness, it's doubtful that Velkis himself knows what he is. Physically, Velkis is tall and gaunt, with sunken features and eyes that bulge. The only covering he wears is a red toga. When he speaks, it's with a thick accent that rambles through disturbed philosophical musings, comical absurdities, and bilious threats. But people listen. They don't have a choice. It is an irresistible, magical compulsion to pay attention to Velkis' words. And if he makes a request, those who hear are compelled to obey, unless they succeed on a save versus magic. These compulsions last until Velkis is killed which might happen frequently. Such powers would make a more tactically-minded villain unstoppable. Fortunately for his victims, Velkis is nuts. His requests are inefficiently phrased and filled with exploitable loopholes. Only the letter of the law must be obeyed. At most game tables, speaking is a free action. To keep things reasonable, Velkis will not make any requests more than twice per round. However, he may make requests at any time, during anyone's turn. This may even preempt a player's action after they have declared it, i.e., after the player says, I attack Velkis, Velkis may say, don't attack me. Like any character, speaking does not affect Velkis' ability to move or act during his own turn. A touch from Velkis causes a painful bruise to appear, dealing 1d4 damage. Characters reduced to zero or fewer hit points by this attack do not die, but instead become docile and instinctively shamble towards Velkis' boudoir. 
Vilkas does not leave signs of his passage. He never leaves footprints, even in snow or sand, and when he is wet he does not drip. When killed, a new body immediately arises in Area 5. The new body is unchanged, but its hit dice are halved from 6 to 3 until it has been alive for 24 hours. Being killed multiple times on the same day does not reduce his hit dice below 3. His dead bodies decompose normally. Vilka's functional immortality allows him to shrug off wounds that would normally be fatal. A hole through the head or chest will not phase him. Referees are encouraged to describe every hit against Velkis as a gruesome wound. He is cavalier about bodily harm and may even try to crack jokes about his injuries. These usually aren't very funny. Running Velkis. If the referee is an asshole, Velkis just needs to repeat, kill yourself, over and over. That's two saves versus total party kill each round physical violence against the referee would be justified. The essential trick is that Velkis is crazy, which makes him inefficient. Some examples. This is a terrible way to treat a person. Come now, please try to say something nice to me. Slow down. There is something important which you need to look at. It is behind you. Dancing is better, I think. You try. Dance to my song. Bum ba bum ba bum ba dum ba da bum. You think that is okay? To stab a person? Go on, stab your friend. What do they think? Listen, we got off on the wrong foot. Let us shake hands in spirit of friendliness. You should be ashamed. I am in a very big rush, and you are wasting my time. It is very rude. Hurry on to my graveyard, fast as you can. I need to get your blood out. Stop touching me! Hey! No! Bad! Drop it! Good boy! Now sit! That one is two separate commands. That's it! You cannot be trusted with sharp things, so you must drop them, now! Fine! I do not even want your blood anymore! Just leave me alone! Forever! When encountered away from his lair, Velka's primary goal is to lure victims back there. Once in his power, roll 1d3 to determine their fate. 1. They are made into his servants. 2. Used to feed his tree in Area 2. and 3. Used to fill his bed, Area 5. If Velka's location hasn't been recently established, the referee should roll a D% percent to determine where he is when the players enter his boudoir. On a 1 to 40, he is currently in his lair, probably sleeping in Area 5. 41 to 65, he is away from his lair, but close enough to get back within one adventuring turn. 66 to 80, he is two turns away. 81 to 90, he's three turns away. 91 to 99, he's four turns away, and on a roll of 100, Velkis is a full six turns away from his lair. The players will have a lot of time to plunder it before they must deal with him. Every three turns the players are within the boudoir, there is a one in six chance they encounter 2d4 servants of Velkis. Servants of Velkis. These are the unlucky souls who have eaten the fruit in Area 2. 
they are completely obedient to Velkis and pursue his best interests at all times. If the PCs encounter a group of these, one will attempt to flee and inform their master of intruders, while the rest will give their lives to cover their comrades' retreat. Servants of Velkis become increasingly emaciated over time and die after four weeks. If Velkis' skull is destroyed, any living servants will be freed. Characters who become servants retain their skills and abilities, but, unless a more powerful character from your game has suffered this fate, all are level zero humanoids. The Blood-Soaked Boudoir Exterior There is an open grave in an untended corner of an old cemetery. The passage of years have made the headstone illegible. Beside the grave is a pile of earth that is too small and too tightly packed for the excavation to be recent. This grave has lain open for years. Hidden in the pile of dirt is the grave's original occupant. Amidst the bones are scraps of fine cloth, an emerald floral brooch worth a hundred silver pieces, a boxy golden neck chain worth two hundred silver pieces, and an ornate dagger and sheath, crafted so the blade resembles a bird's beak. The dagger is not magical, but as a work of craftsmanship and a status symbol, it is worth five hundred silver pieces. Anyone who climbs into the grave will immediately realize they are not standing on packed earth. The bottom of the grave is a wooden door, covered in a thin layer of dirt to hide it from view. It can be pulled open so long as no one is standing on it. At the threshold of the door, gravity reorients 90 degrees, so that the door enters into Area 1 not as a trapdoor in the ceiling, but as a normal door along the southern wall. Of course, players will not know this until they either pass through the door, or throw something into the open doorway and see it land against what appears to be the wall. Describing Area 1 from this angle may prove challenging, so refer to the text below. The door opens into a narrow room with an unusually high ceiling. It is roughly 8 feet wide and more than 30 feet down to the floor. It's not clear from here how far east and west the room extends. Directly under the trapdoor is a red figure lying on its back. It has not reacted to your presence. Interior The walls, floors, and ceilings are constructed of gray stone. Many stones are loose due to the decaying mortar. The ceilings here are completely flat, possible because of the inverted gravity of the boudoir. All doors are made of iron. There is no light in most rooms, and the whole place smells of cold blood. Area 1 Opposite the entrance is a statue standing in a recess on the wall. It's an angular human form, lacking musculature, a face, or hands. A stick figure in marble. The only feature is a huge grinning wedge for a mouth. The entire statue is covered in a damp red powder with a faint peppery smell. If the powder is disturbed, Velkis is alerted to the presence of intruders in his boudoir. Hidden in the powder are twelve small rubies embedded in the statue's stomach. They are cut to resemble droplets and are worth a hundred silver each. Prying them free is easy, but disturbs the powder. The room's eastern door has an obvious opening device, an unlocked brass knob. Where the knob should be on the western door, there is instead a small brass dish with faded engravings of teeth, tongue, and tonsils. Rising from the center of the dish, pointing upwards, is a large needle. 
If a drop of blood is placed in the dish, it is absorbed into the metal, and the dish will turn like a handle, unlatching the door so it can be pulled open. Anyone foolish enough to use the needle provided on the dish must roll a saving throw versus poison, or take 1d6 constitution damage each turn for three turns. Area 2. Embedded in the ceiling is a jagged black stone, which emanates a low, blue light. Fires fade to a mere flicker, too weak to illuminate anything. Anyone standing in the light feels nauseated and tastes copper in their mouths. In the center of the room is an apparently dead tree, planted in a circular patch of soil seven feet in diameter. The tree has no leaves, yet it has two d6 apples. The apples are withered and rotten-looking, but smell sweet and are firm to the touch. If cut open, the flesh and juices of the apples are pink. Around the tree are 1d4 plus 1 bodies. Roots grow around and through them. Despite their many deadly wounds, there is no blood. If the players are looking for someone whose fate is feeding Velkis tree, see running Velkis above, their body is here. The fruit of the trees is Velkis' only source of nourishment. If anyone but Velkis eats the fruit, they become one of his servants. See Servants of Velkis above. If anyone kneels or lays down near the tree, the roots will wrap around and pierce their body. A save versus breath will avoid the roots. If the save is failed, the character is ensnared and takes one point of constitution damage per round until released or dead. An entrapped character is held too tightly to free themselves. Another character can easily hack the roots away with a sword or axe. The roots are not monstrous tentacles. At the base of the tree, beneath the soil, is Velkis' original skull. Only by destroying this can Velkis ever be permanently killed. At the base of the tree, beneath the soil, is Velkis' original skull. Only by destroying this can Velkis ever be permanently killed. Area 3 The ceiling is three feet higher here than in other rooms. Where the ceiling would normally be is an iron grate with a locked trap door. Prisoners were kept here, never able to stand erect. Below is a room filled with devices of torture. In the northeast corner of the room is a table with straps for a captive's neck, hands, and legs. Miniature guillotines are poised to chop off the victim's extremities, activated by a pressure plate beneath the victim's head. They would be forced to hold their head off the plate or lose their hands and feet. In the northwest corner are four racks displaying knives, ropes, whips, and manacles. Several branding devices hang above a fireplace built on the eastern wall, and a steel chair is bolted just a few feet away. Along the southern wall are a rack and a Spanish donkey. Adjacent to the western entrance is a locked chest, containing clothes, a set of plate mail, a longsword and shield, light crossbow with a dozen bolts, and a pack containing some adventuring odds and ends. In the center of the room is an Iron Maiden. If the players make noise in this room, walking without being stealthy or speaking above a whisper would be sufficient, a voice will call out from within the Iron Maiden. The voice is desperate for release and barely able to form coherent thought. The Maiden is latched, but not locked. Within is Alfred, a naked man covered in scabbed wounds and dried blood. 
His skin hangs strangely from his frame, perhaps from malnourishment and abuse. His body is covered head to toe in sloppy stitching. Alfred claims to be a paladin who came here to slay the undead man. Vilkas proved too strong and chose to torture Alfred for amusement. Often, while speaking, he will twitch and let out a small k sound, apparently a nervous tick. In matter of fact, Alfred is an automata, crafted by a much more lucid Velkis many years ago. He will eagerly join the party, claiming the equipment in the chest is his own. He will follow the party wherever they go, and betray them at the earliest opportunity. Area 4 Hundreds of small nooks are cut into the long stone of this chamber. Each is roughly three feet by three feet, and spaced two feet away from the next closest nook on each side. A few dozen of these are empty, but most contain the same thing, a pile of bones with a skull placed neatly on top. For each turn spent searching the nooks, roll on the table below and mark off each entry as it is rolled. 1d12 if all are being searched, 10 if the empty nooks are being ignored. If an entry is rolled twice, re-roll it. 1, 2, and 3 are nothing. 4. Upon being disturbed, the bones zoom out into the room, as do the bones of eight other nooks. They arrange themselves into four grotesque bone creatures. Each of these has two heads. 5. A four-foot-long centipede is coiled amongst the bones. It springs out, making a surprise attack. 6. The skull is resting against a pressure plate. If disturbed, a scything blade will drop through the nook. Players must make a save versus breath, or lose any limb that was within the nook. 7. One of the femurs in the pile is affixed to the skull by a chain. These magically hardened bones function as a morning star of superb quality. Anytime max damage is rolled with this flail, the damage die may be rolled a second time. 8. The teeth of this skull are made of gold. Altogether, they are worth 200 silver pieces. 9. Beneath the bones are five scroll cases. Four contain scrolls, which have Army of One, Gaseous Form, Fairy Fire, and Haste on them. The fifth contains a desiccated finger with a silver ring on it. Whomever removes the ring must make a saving throw versus magic or be possessed by the spirit of a dead sorceress named Vesevia. The character retains their physical appearance and abilities, but their intelligence becomes 16, their wisdom 10, and their charisma 12. They lose any abilities gained from their class and gain the abilities of a 5th level magic user. If the save is successful, Vesevia's spirit is destroyed, and the player may now use the ring themselves. If they are wearing it when they die, whomever removes it will need to make a save versus magic or become possessed by the dead character in the same way keeping their own physical ability scores, and gaining the dead character's mental scores, class, and level. 10. A pair of smooth, polished obsidian gems rest inside the skull. Each is worth 80 silver pieces. 11 is one of the empty nooks and has nothing in it. 12, again one of the empty nooks, has an invisible chest. It's heavy, made of wood, and fills roughly half the nook. The chest is locked, and unlocking it without dispelling the invisibility requires a tinker check at minus one. 
Within the chest is a cloak of red velvet, with golden thread embroidered at the hem. The wearer becomes a spectral creature. They cannot be seen or heard, and are not affected by physical obstacles. Once per day, they may attempt to possess people while spectral. If the victim fails a save versus magic, the player takes control of the character. After three turns, the victim is allowed a new save. This repeats until a save is successful, or the PC chooses to end the possession. When the player removes the cloak, there is a 5% chance, cumulative for each turn the cloak was worn, that the cloak returns to the material world without the wearer. They are trapped in an immaterial state. Beneath the cloak are a leather purse containing 30 gold pieces, a brace of rifled flintlock pistols, and a spellbook containing 8 first level spells, 6 second level spells, 4 third level spells, 2 fourth level spells, and 1 fifth level spell, rolled randomly from the magic user spells section of the Rules and Magic book. Area 5 Human bodies hang by their feet, suspended from large iron hooks on the east and west walls. The bodies are pale, with the last of their blood dribbling from slit throats. The blood flows into channels on the floor, which runs into a six-by-three-foot pool, six feet deep, filled to the brim. If the players are looking for someone whose fate is filling Velkis' bed, see running Velkis above, their body is here. Unseen at the bottom of the pool are tree roots breaking through the stone. These are part of the tree in Area 2. A dozen red togas hang next to the bodies, identical to the one Velkis wears. The rear of the alcove is filled by overflowing shelves of leather-bound books. There is a writing desk against the northern wall. The desk is Spartan, just a flat surface with two drawers. One contains a selection of fine fountain pens, six in total worth 15 silver each. The other contains a charred skull. The skull whispers secrets in the night to whomever possesses it. Once per day, the player can make a wisdom check, roll 1d20 under their wisdom score, to know any specific piece of information. If the check fails, they lose one point of wisdom. Anyone reduced below five wisdom in this way is driven mad, and becomes the property of the GM to use against the PCs. The books, written by Velkis himself, are penned in blood. The handwriting is almost illegible, with lines that slant downward and often overlap other lines entirely. Many books have large sections of blank pages, but none are entirely empty. What can be deciphered is nonsense. Each time six turns are spent reading, roll on the table below. If the same result comes up twice, then nothing legible was found. If more than one player is searching, the number of turns spent is cumulative. Two reading characters may roll every three turns. Three reading characters may roll every two turns, etc. If the players want to haul these books away and read them more thoroughly, there are 24 encumbrance points of material here, equivalent to 12 suits of plate armor. 1. Blood is bad, icky, and terrible. My tongue hates it. Vampires are stupid. But fed to a tree, ah, such fruit. Everything else is ash and vomit. Good for sleeping, though. Blood, I mean. Just keep the mouth closed for sleep. 2. 
How did my brain helmet get out of me? I know I put a seed inside of it, but I puzzle how I ever got it out of me. Once it's out, I'd be dead. But before it came out, I didn't come back. At least, I think not. I don't remember dying before it got under the tree. Maybe I could always come back? 3. One time, I am born with no blood. Squeeze from wood, many splinters, naked for weeks to grow. Blood is the lubricant. Like lightning I pop out. Splitch, kapow, vilkis. 4. Somewhere I put my cloak, but I do not know where it is put. You know, Velkis, the one with gold that was used for being a sneaker. It was a danger before, but I don't know now, because I don't stay dead as much as I used to. 5. The bygone days I spent making the pain and the hurt. What nostalgia I am filled with. But the adulation of those days is gone. The hurt is dull to me now. I feel a sadness, but all good things will pass. Except me. I keep passing, then waking up again. Why do I do that? 6. A unique spell called Exsanguinating Palm, which must be pieced together from several locations. If copied, there is a 15% chance the spell was incomplete. Casting the incomplete spell mutates the caster. The Metamorphica is available free online, and would be put to excellent use here. Exsanguinating Palm. Magic user, level 3. Duration, instant. Range, touch. After casting this spell, a mouth grows on the caster's palm, visible only to magic users. It remains there until the caster successfully touches someone with it. A handshake or a successful attack roll is sufficient. The victim must make a saving throw versus magic. If they fail, they take 3d6 damage from their blood draining out of their orifices. On a successful save, the target takes only 1d6 damage. QIE Nobody has actually asked these Anticipatory questions. FAQs they are just questions are I alive. expect. What happens if players kill Velkis in Area 5? A new Velkis immediately appears in the bloody pool. He may choose to jump out and renew his attacks, or he may choose to stay hidden in the blood. If killed multiple times, his bodies will begin to pile up. What happens if players drain the blood from his bed? He still comes back. The players will be able to see him growing from the tree root at the bottom of the bed. Without the blood, he requires 1d6 adventuring turns to grow a new body. He only has one hit point, but is able to speak immediately. What if the players destroy the root in his bed? He still comes back over the course of 1d6 adventuring turns, but he'll come back in Area 2 instead. What if players chop down or burn the tree in Area 2? Depending how they do it, they may find the skull. But if the skull is not destroyed, he'll still come back in 1d6 adventuring turns from any scrap of the tree still attached to the skull. What if the skull is removed from the ground entirely? Even if the tree is completely obliterated and the skull is placed in a glass jar on a shelf, a new tree will grow from it within three months, and Velkis will rise again. This has been a reading 
of the blood-soaked boudoir of Velkis the Vile. Read by Nick L.S. Whalen. If you enjoyed this production and would be interested in having your own OSR publication read in a similar manner, please get in touch with me. I can be reached at ls at paperspencils.com. Thank you for listening.